This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we have another installation in our series on military medicine and special operators. And I am very excited. Uh, today we're joined by Luke Shuley. Luke is a retired special operator, a Green Beret medic, who had extensive experience in the field, both working and, as we'll hear, on the other side of a medic's work. Um, he's now retired from that uh, life and working in the private sector. Luke, welcome to the show. Take a moment to say hello to our audience. Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Um, if you could, uh, you know, for our listeners, expand a little bit about your background, how you found your way into the military, and, and with that, what drew you towards the medical side of operations? Yeah, prior to joining the military, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was working there as a firefighter and a paramedic. I uh, graduated from the University of Pittsburgh uh, Emergency Medicine Program. After that, I uh, got my bachelor's degree to emergency medicine. I still wanted to continue or to find a way to serve uh, post 9-11, so I joined the military. I came in with an infantry contract. I didn't want to do anything medical. Once I got through uh, infantry and airborne school, I ended up finding my way into special forces, went through the special forces pipeline, became a Green Beret and a special forces medic, and I spent the remainder of my career working out of 10 special forces group at Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, from there, I did a couple deployments across Africa, Ukraine, and Afghanistan, and then ultimately retired post-injury in 2020. Luke, now tell us a little, a little bit more about that, because I think some of our listeners don't live in America. Um, what does it mean to be a Green Beret? Like, what, what exactly does that entail? How is that different from being a typical infantry man? Sure. So the military, specifically the Army, has a couple of different categories and sections that fall under the Special Operations Command. Uh, one of those being uh, Special Forces, more commonly known as Green Berets. Another aspect that, of that is the Rangers, and then there's PSYOPs, Civil Affairs, and a, and a couple other ones. Special Forces in particular has a unique uh, mission set that was created by JFK back in the day to work with foreign militaries by, with, and through uh, conducting unconventional warfare, and just a really unique aspect of how we get things done from a military side, whether that's building up their their military capability or working with a partner force to get an objective done. That's kind of how the Green Berets were, were created, and we saw a big push for that in Vietnam, and we've kind of carried that and made that capability much larger now, where it's it's probably one of the biggest missions that the Department of Defense does, and we do it all across the world, and it's not just the U.S., Special Forces and Green Berets doing it. Now there's a lot of other units and a lot of other entities doing it, uh, but it's the same mission set. And, and tell us a little about the training, because, you know, you hear a lot about BUDS, Navy SEALs, Hell Week and all that. Tell us about what that's like for Green Berets. Sure. So the Green Berets are completely different than the Rangers and the SEALs. It's a, a pretty mis misconception across the board that Special Forces applies to everybody. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really... It couldn't be any more different. The mission of the SEALs and the Rangers are a lot more aligned than the Green Beret mission set. And the structure of the Green Berets are a little bit different compared to an infantry platoon or a SEAL squadron or something like that. So uh, a typical SF team will have 12, 12 guys on it that have a, a certain skill set. Those skill sets are from the leadership perspective as we have a, an 18 Alpha who's in charge of the team, an 18 Zulu who's the senior non-commissioned officer, 
And then we have two weapons guys, two engineers, two medics, two comms guys, and an intelligence sergeant uh, that all make up a, a 12 person element. You know, Luke, I was uh, really struck when you were just talking about the, the process becoming a Green Beret by the phrase you used, unconventional warfare. One, as a tried and true word nerd and lover of language, that's just a great phrase, unconventional warfare. But I think that a lot of our listeners and anyone who lives and works in the field of neurosurgery can resonate and feel some kinship with what I think is the philosophy behind that. In, in medicine, you know, there's many fields and specialties of medicine that can be very cut and dry by the book, and they have a lot of evidentiary basis, a lot of guidelines to follow. And neurosurgery is one of those, to, you know, to speak broadly, a cowboy field where because of the nature of what we do, there's not a lot of evidence. There's not frequently a lot of guidelines for a lot of the subspecialties and pathologies within neurosurgery. And so there's a lot more focus on individuals making a judgment in the moment and kind of doing the best with what we can and our intuition, our judgment, our experience in very unconventional or atypical scenarios that we find. So um, I imagine that the phrase unconventional warfare has some kinship with that kind of by the seat of your pants intuition uh, framework, but maybe could you expand a little bit about what that means specifically in the military context and, and what that meant in your enactment of it? Sure. I think in, even right now, there's a really good uh parallel to make to it. When we talk about unconventional warfare, that implies that there's a conventional warfare. And that that is the case. What you're seeing on the conventional warfa uh, warfare side is, is basically what you're seeing in Ukraine right now, is I would chalk that war up to a, a, a mostly conventional warfare that is fought by, you know, regular artillery, infantry tactics, you know, some people would call this a LISCO event, a large scale, uh, large scale combat operation. Unconventional warfare looks at all other aspects that that aren't included in that. And for special forces, is part of that is direct action, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, special reconnaissance, information operations, counterproliferation, uh, hostage rescue, combat search and rescue, security force assistance. There's a couple different subsets that fall under unconventional warfare. And for me, one of the things that that really makes SF stand out compared to all the other branches and divisions of special operations is that unique ability and that flexibility to not just be good or capable of doing one thing, but being able to, to function in basically any environment, anywhere in the world to get whatever it takes to get it done. Uh, and I think that that might be a good analogy for what, what you guys are talking about with your specialty and your no failure attitude on your approach to neurosurgery. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Luke. Um, a good point about functioning and having, a, we call it a neurosurgery, delivering the message to Garcia, like failure is really not an option. You're given an assignment. There's often limited information. You just have to get it done. And and it sounds like you spent a good number of time um, downrange, right? You went to a couple different foreign countries that were quite uh, hostile uh, environments to be living in, right? Yeah, for sure. Some of them, you know, more hostile than others, some of them more austere than others. And uh, between all my deployments is all of them were completely different from, you know, deploying to Africa to deploying to Ukraine to deploying to Afghanistan is they were three completely different mission sets that all fell under the SF umbrella of 
unconventional warfare and, and what our mission set was was tasked to do. You know, Luke, that's uh, kind of a, a perfect moment for the most interesting thing I want to ask you about, although truly I could pick your brain about everything you just listed, every aspect of unconventional warfare you just listed. I'm sure I could listen to you talk about each of those for an hour. But as you kind of teased for our listeners when, when you're introducing yourself and talking about your background, you, in the line of, of duty, you suffered a, a fairly severe injury. And so it's uh, an injury that, you know, is very pertinent to the field of neurosurgery, as our listeners will hear. But it's also one that I want to acknowledge and respect the, the fact that you suffered that out there serving our country and, and the people of America. So we thank you for going through all that for us. But to set the stage for this story, why don't you just tell us and our listeners um, the background and, and what led up to the injury you sustained? Sure. So January 18th, 2018, uh, you know, myself and my team were a part of a, a bigger mission set, basically doing a village clearance operation in southern Afghanistan and Helmand province. Uh, in particular, there is me and a, me and another Green Beret were working with uh, eight of our host nation local Afghan commandos. Uh, our, we were tasked with clearing through this village to a prison that was supposed to be controlled uh, by the Taliban, and we were supposed to gain access to that prison gather some information and, and see who was in the prison and then, you know, take those, those people uh, suspected we were going to be taking them uh, with us. So that morning is we had infilled late at night, early in the morning uh, on a couple of different Chinooks, cleared our way uh, through the village to this prison. Uh, we set up a, uh, a point of concealment just outside of the prison and we were working with our Afghan commandos to go into this prison. And we, we ran into a bunch of issues with, with them and communication and, and just a lot of other issues is, you know, that, that we probably wish we could have taken back, but we did run into some issues and I ended up uh, talking to the other Green Beret that was with me. I was like, Hey, look, man, like we're, we're just as big of a threat being out in the open here. I'm tired of waiting for them to do it. They're not getting the job done. I'm just going to go do it myself. So we tied into some C4. We had an initial breach point uh, picked out and we went to go try to breach that point. You know, we kind of did some on, on the fly decisions, changed the breach point, found another way to get into the building. We tied in our C4 to the breach point. We moved back to a safer area and, you know, we called the breach up over the net. We breach into the building and then immediately after we set off our C4 is another explosion occurred. Didn't really know what happened. It happened almost instantaneously after we breached into it and it blew up the building that we were, uh, that we were breaching into at the time as I was on the knee next to uh, a good buddy of mine, the building blew up a piece of that building, uh, a lot, a lot of pieces from that building ended up falling on top of, uh, me and, uh, me and my buddy. The piece that landed on me landed directly on the top of my head, which is, you know, explaining some of the injuries that I'm assuming we're going to get into. And then another piece of that building uh, landed on the guy that was next to me. And, uh, you know, that basically kind of stopped the mission where we were at. I wasn't able to move. My night vision had been knocked off. I couldn't see anything. My comms had been knocked off. I really couldn't hear anything. Uh, and, me and my me and my buddy were kind of on the ground uh, underneath this rubble. And we basically had to call people over to to come and get us out from underneath it. Wow. And, and you were conscious the whole time. 
Yeah, there was a brief episode um, afterwards where like I couldn't tell if I had just gotten my bell rung or if I had lost consciousness. Um, but I think for the most part is I was pretty, pretty well conscious for it. And so this is like a live fire situation, right? Because you're engaging the enemy and now you're you and your, your guys are pinned down. How long does it take for them to respond and, and dig you out? Well, luckily, fortunately or unfortunately, is you know, we work in small elements. So it was only me and the guy that was with me as far as Americans that were there. But luckily, is other elements from the team were nearby. Uh, they knew what the plan was. They knew where we were going to be going. And then whenever the explosion went off is, you know, people were able to figure out uh, relatively quick, quickly where we were at. Then it was just a matter of moving more Americans and more Afghans to come over and help uh, try to get us back from, uh, you know, from underneath the building. So Luke, uh, that's a pretty harrowing story. Um, you know, I was trying to put myself in your position and, and following along as you recounted those events. Um, and, you know, you left off with, with you and your, your buddy under a pile of rubble. So um, I, I think the logical question is, what happens next. But um, again, kind of as you as you mentioned, specifically with the injury you sustained, maybe you could uh, tell our listeners specifically what you found out once you were rescued and brought to a medical professional, what you found out had happened as a result of that rubble falling on you. Sure. So after the after the building collapsed is I didn't know exactly what was going on with me medically, but I have enough of a medical background to know that it wasn't good. Uh, the sensation that I was feeling across my body wasn't normal. Uh, and it felt like I couldn't move my arms or my legs. I felt like I was pinned underneath something and that's why I couldn't move. And what ultimately ended up happening was, you know, I was calling for help. I couldn't hear anything, couldn't see anything. People came over and started moving debris off of us. And I remember a buddy of mine was like, Hey man, like, let's go. And I was like, I can't move. Like there's still stuff on top of me. And he was like, there's nothing on top of you. And that was really when it hit home that, you know, something catastrophic had happened and I couldn't tell, like, I didn't really know what was going on with my hip other than my hip hurt really bad, but my sensation felt off. Like I felt like I wasn't able to move my arms or my legs in reality at that time is I was moving my arms and legs, but I couldn't really tell and I couldn't see it. Um, and I'm sure that there's some adrenaline coming into this. That's, that was, uh, that was, that was messing with me. Um, but they ended up getting all the debris off of me. Uh, I couldn't move uh, on my own. So they ended up having to carry me back to that last cover of concealment that we had, uh, which happened to be a, a madrasa. They pulled me into the madrasa and then uh, the second medic on the team and my warrant officer, who was also a prior medic, uh, started taking care of me, getting the medevac spun up and trying to get me back to uh, an FST. But I didn't know at the time how bad it was. Yeah, you know, Luke, it strikes me that as you're talking about this, you seem so calm, right? Like when I talk to patients who, who've been injured, um, you know, when they recount the stories, they often get very emotional. I mean, was this, how, do, how did it feel to you emotionally? Were you just in shock and denial? Like most people who, who look back on something like this, they're, they have trouble with it, right? Yeah, I think I went through a couple of different episodes with it, you know, on the ground whenever it first happened is the emotions that I felt then were, you know, panic, you know, scared, pain, 
Um, and then as the dust kind of settles, you know, no pun intended is, you know, once I got back to like the U S and I was, you know, inpatient in the hospital doing spinal cord injury rehab, like that was when it really hit me. Um, and then from there's, you know, you, you, you kind of, and it didn't, it wasn't easy. I mean, it took me, it took me a long time and a lot of, um, you know, physical and, and mental work to kind of get back up on my feet. I mean, I ended up going through a divorce. I ended up going through a career change. Uh, I ended up going through a bunch of different physical changes and uh, it definitely wasn't easy, but it also didn't start right away is, you know, the, the first thing that happened was just like the panic. Uh, none of that other stuff really kind of hit me until I was, you know, back at Walter Reed and then in the spinal cord injury center. Yeah, so it, if you could, and if you're comfortable doing so, maybe you could expand a bit on kind of that phase of your reaction and the realizations of what had happened to you. Because I, I think most of the people listening to this conversation working in neurosurgery, we see patients when the injury happens. We see them in the days and maybe weeks afterwards. And then some of us see people in the months and years later, if you're in chronic spinal cord injury research, but in, in kind of the, the period of time that you're describing, when you're starting to go through rehab, you're realizing the different aspects of your life that are going to change. We don't often as neurosurgeons interact with people in that period of this process. So maybe if you could talk a bit about what realizations you were having, what was going through your head and, and just frankly, what that all is like. So it's interesting is whenever I got medevac back to the hospital and I, you know, my, my team sergeant was there, my company sergeant major was there, all the doctors and stuff were there. And I remember talking to them and they're like, Hey, look, you know, you know, it looks like you have a pelvic fracture and, you know, there's some other things going on. And, you know, I didn't quite, I didn't still know everything that was going on right away. Is I remember having a conversation with somebody where I was like, Hey, look, man, like, let's not call my wife. Like, let's not really tell anybody that this happened. And, you know, I could probably get surgery. I could finish out the deployment. Like I could do something different and like, I don't have to go home. Like I'll just stay here. And like, we just kind of won't tell anybody that this happened. And I remember like having that conversation and some people were just like, uh, yeah, 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 sure, buddy. Like whatever you want. Like I was like the crazy guy that had like this complete loss of reality. And it was like I, at the time, like I really thought that I was going to be able to kind of go through this injury and still stay in country and, you know, still go back out. And it didn't really hit. And, you know, I'm sure that pain medicine and stuff like that had something to do with it. But I remember a period where, I was like, oh yeah, like I'm not going to call home and tell my wife or my family what happened. Like, I'm just going to, we're just going to brush this under the, under the carpet and we'll get back after it. And that'll be that. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, I kind of came to, and I had a conversation with, you know, one of the doctors that was there where, you know, he was like, Hey, look, man, you know, we got, we got the imagery back and you got some, you know, some pretty significant injury to your cervical spine. That's why you're having some of these sensation issues. It's why the left side of your body you know, isn't working like you're expecting it to your pelvis has been pretty bad shape and, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to do surgery, but we're not going to do it here. And we're going to try to get you to Germany as quickly as possible so that, you know, we can get these procedures done. And, uh, it kind of started hitting home as I was going through that process. Uh, but it really didn't, you know, I went straight from Kandahar to Germany. I had neurosurgery in Germany 
went right back on another sea uh, cat bird back to Walter Reed. And then I was in the ICU for a couple of days before going back in for reconstructive pelvic surgery. Um, after I got out of reconstructive pelvic surgery, that's when it really hit me that like, this was a career ending injury. And, you know, I thought that I would, you know, recover, stay in SF and, and kind of ride out my career. Uh, but it wasn't until after pelvic surgery that I really realized like how bad things actually were for me, uh, in the long term. So, and, and just so, cause our listeners can't see this. I mean, they can refer to some of the images that you've been so generous as to share with us and, and open about. And I think so many can learn from your experience. You had a real spinal injury, right? You had a Brown card. You had a true neurological injury, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a C4, 5 lamina fracture, C5 vertebral body fracture, C6 compression fracture, uh, disc ball, uh, disc bulge involvement, uh, anterior blood epidural. Um, yeah, it was, it was legit. Yeah. And, and so how, how are you doing now? Are you, do you left with pain or you feel like you're a fairly normal person? Uh, I definitely, I definitely wouldn't say that I'm a normal person. I probably wasn't a normal person prior to this, but, uh, post-injury is, uh, you know, my, my, my spinal cord injury and my neck surgery and neck fractures gives me a different set of problems than my pelvic fracture does. So my, my pelvic fracture and, and reconstructive pelvic surgery causes me poor, more pain and mobility issues than, than anything else. My spinal cord injury as, as no surprise is it's more like practical related. Like the left side of my body is still numb you know, I can't, I really can't hold on to certain things with my left hand without dropping it. Um, the, the sensation is off, you know, it's atrophied. Uh, you can look at my arms all the way up into my traps and lats, and, and you can see that the left side is his atrophied. Uh, so that's typically where I see more problems from my spinal cord injury compared to the pelvic fracture. But, you know, it's interesting. You, I mean, you, you told us earlier before we started recording about, you know, you have made a dramatic recovery. How much do you attribute that to the resolve, the dedication, the positive attitude that was developed in you as a person and also maybe in your special forces training? It's a good question. You know, I think that I think that there's probably a couple different factors. And I think that one of those factors is just luck. Uh, you know, there's there was 30 people in the spinal cord injury center at the Tampa VA in Florida, where I spent about four months. And out of every, every single person that was there with a spinal cord injury is nobody was going to really walk again and nobody had bowel and bladder control. And I did. Um, and I don't know how much of that is, you know, that I can, I can honestly chalk up to will and drive as much as it is, you know, a little bit, of, a lot of luck and, um, you know, situational with the fact that it wasn't a complete injury you know, um, the, I mean, if it was a complete injury, you know, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation and everything else from there, I think is a lot more, uh, on, on me and my drive, uh, with a, with a little bit of luck. You know, I think that at one point is I was definitely in the woe is me stage. You know, I felt bad for myself. I hated myself. I didn't like where I was at. I didn't like the injury and how it was affecting my life. And sooner or later is I just put all of that behind me and said, I'm done with this. Like I, I, I was 30 whenever I got injured. 
and I still have a lot of life to live. I can look for a new career. I can, I can, I can rehab and, and get better physically. You know, I was in a, I was in a power wheelchair for, for five months. And as soon as I got out of the power wheelchair, you know, I really tried to, you know, I actively, you know, found a, a physical therapy clinic close to my hometown. I started doing occupational therapy. I started going to the gym on my own. And, you know, it's, it's, I've had highs and lows doing it, but, you know, now relatively speaking is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at a, I'm at a comfortable, healthy weight. I'm, I'm relatively fit. You know, I can't run anymore, but I still row and I do, uh, you know, a lot of biking and stuff like that for cardio, but it was a big mental, it was, it became more of a mental struggle than it did a, a physical struggle. If you would have asked me before, you know, what the hardest part was going to be, I would have told you that it would have been all the physical things, not being able to use my left hand, dealing with pain, dealing with the sensation issues, all of those things I thought were going to be the big problems. And, and they were problematic, but the big, the bigger problems was dealing with the mental struggle of, you know, my, I, I just got injured in combat, my career, which I love dearly as, as a Green Beret and as a medic is, you know, just came to an abrupt halt and I lost my marriage and relationship. And now I need to, to start all over, you know, I need to start over physically, I need to start over mentally, I need to start over my relationship, I need to start over my career, I need to start so many things over at 30. And I just wasn't prepared for that. And I don't think that there's really anything that can prepare you for that. Well, honestly, hearing you talk about being in that rehab center, and I think kind of echoing what Dr. Wang observed, which, which is that resolve and that drive that I think is common to someone of your character and whatever internal intrinsic qualities drew you to a special operations career, and is also common to those of us in neurosurgery that have that same inner drive and that inner resolve is the ability not only to keep moving forward, keep eyes ahead, even in a tragic situation like that, but as you pointed out, to observe those around you who have it worse off and, and, and you know, not, not to take a, a schadenfreude look at things and, and say, well, I'm at least I'm not that, you know, taking joy in the fact that people have it worse off than you, but, but rather taking appreciation that things could be worse. And I, you know, I think that that feeling and that mentality of the less bad outcome is very common in neurosurgery as a goal for the treatment of some of our patients that even if we can't achieve something good, we can at least make it less bad. And so that's, it really strikes a chord with me to, to hear how when you were in that situation, you were still able to look around and, and see how much worse it could have been, even when you were struggling through that yourself. Um, but I do, as you talk about struggling with that transition to find a new career, to forge a new life in that period when you're accepting this new body you have, so to speak, this new range of physical capability you have, the psychological change that addresses, why don't you tell us what you decided to do? Where did you go from there? What career path did you take after that transition, after your rehabilitation? And what are you doing with yourself now in your post-military life? Sure. Yeah. One of the things I, I kind of want to touch on is, and you had mentioned it about, you know, not feeling bad for myself or being appreciative of it. And I, I, I kind of want to highlight this, especially because of the amount of medical people that are on it. So one is I like to think that I've, I've tried to do the polar opposite of that. So not only am I 
you know, grateful for the circumstance and the cards that I was given, even though at, at a time I felt like they weren't the best ones is not only have I tried to be more appreciative is I've also tried to find other ways to, to give back to the military, specifically special operations communities on how we take care, prevent and treat injuries from spinal cord to hemorrhagic shock. Um, that's been a really strong motivator for me to get back on my feet and to, to wake up every day and to continue to grind, to do something that I enjoy doing. Um, the other aspect of that on the, on the medical side is, you know, a lot of times I think that clinicians, whether you're an EMT or a neurosurgeon is we lose focus on the fact that we're actually working on a human being and not just a person or a number or a name on a chart. And, you know, we get tied up around, you know, injury patterns and what's wrong and what they need. And we forget about the fact that this is an actual person. This is a person with a name, a family, a job, hobbies, emotions, and all of these other things. And we just started, we just start treating what's in front of us and we lose focus on the fact that this person feels pain. This person has anxiety related to surgery or you know this person's going to have life altering things and the way that you interact and respond and take care of that person from pre-op to post-op to long-term care is something that i think a lot of people will lose focus on and it, it should be a constant reminder that if you are a medical clinician from the highest to the lowest level that you took an obligation to take care of people and you need to remember to do that. I've been around too many medical clinicians that look at their job as a job and not a profession. And I think that whenever you lose focus on that is you really need to look internal as to what you're doing and whether or not this is for you or not. Because I think about my neurosurgeon who I've never met all the time and how thankful I am that whatever he did or that whatever he did on that day must have been 110% for me to be where I'm at now. And what if I wouldn't have had that same, that same surgeon, or I would have had a surgeon who was burned out or didn't maintain their proficiency or wasn't passionate about their job or didn't care about being the best surgeon that they could have been. And I would have had a worsening outcome because of that. I think that's extremely important to remember on the medical aspect is, is we have a bigger purpose to serve as healthcare clinicians and I think that we need to sometimes be reminded about that. And for me, one of the ways that I've tried to repurpose that is, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about my consulting company, and that has been probably one of the biggest, most beneficial things for me is retiring from the military, maintaining my medical knowledge and skills that I had both in the military and before the military, and now taking that knowledge and experience from the military, as well as what I've done as a civilian and giving that back to the community. Uh, the stuff that I do at Carnegie Mellon, doing military medical research and development, uh, the stuff that I do through my consulting company where we're, we're providing both government and private sector with feedback on what the war fighters need to get ready for the next war, whether that's my experience working in Ukraine, Afghanistan, uh, anywhere across Africa, that has single-handedly probably been the biggest factor in my life is finding a way to repurpose myself in a meaningful way to go and be able to help other people and to help my country. That's a great message, Luke. Can you share with us the name of your company or your consulting company? 
It's Vigilant Consulting Group. That was incredible, Luke. I, I would love to take that entire, I'll just say, speech and put it on a billboard for, for everyone to read on their commute to work every day. Uh, just a, a couple quick things I want to say in response to that. First of all, um, thinking about burnout among neurosurgeons, Dr. Wang's got a great slide that I've seen him use in a few talks that shows the breakdown of burnout among different specialties. And somehow, despite having the highest work hours and the most responsibilities and stress, neurosurgeons are among the least burnt out uh, physicians across any specialty. So you're right that, that we somehow find a way to avoid that. I will also say I couldn't agree with you more about the idea of recognizing the person that you're treating and not just the pathology. We have a saying, particularly in spine neurosurgery, don't operate on imaging because it's so much more complex than just a scan that you see. I was having a conversation with someone uh, just yesterday about this really complex, interesting metastatic spinal tumor. There was compression, there was deformity, there was instability, and they were getting like five different services to plan how to address this thing. And no one had even talked to the patient about if they would want a surgery. And I was just like, you know, there's a whole person surrounding that really interesting tumor. Maybe you should talk to him about it. So I, I think your point, especially speaking as a injury victim and a patient is really well taken. But the one thing I would really like to ask you really briefly before we wrap up, because we're having this conversation in June and anyone who is even remotely, minimally active in any social media related to medicine and academic medicine at this time of year knows that every year around this time, everybody starts getting in fights and arguments and debates about work hours, 24-hour call shifts, duty limitations, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, people just whine about having to work for a long amount of time without stopping. And in particular, asking medical students, someone going through medical school and graduating to be a doctor and a resident they complain about having a requirement for one single 24-hour shift in a hospital to graduate. And so with what you just said about the grind, talking about how hard you work now as a former special operator who suffered a spinal cord injury and is still out there hitting it hard every single day, could you take a few moments to speak to the future physicians of America about how you still find the motivation to work hard and why they can maybe dig deep and get through a single 24-hour shift. You know, it's interesting is I, I was I was thinking about where you were going with this and I was reflecting back <laughs> on, I, I, I gave a lecture last week to uh, down at Fort Hood, Texas for the joint emergency medicine exercise or medical exercise. And the audience was all military members. And I was, I was explaining to them how you know, you're not just a, a surgeon, anesthesiologist, or EM doctor. You're also a member of the U Uniform Services. And I was thinking in my mind how to bridge the gap between the two. And, you know, what I've realized working on both the military and the civilian sector is the differences are, are actually pretty small. Is on the military, we have an obligation to take care of the, the, the men and women, the service members who are are going forward to, you know, to provide national security, defend our country and, and take care of our homeland. And on the civilian side, you're, you are volunteer voluntarily getting into a profession 
nobody forced you to be a EM doctor, a surgeon, an anesthesiologist or whatever. You had made a conscious decision that this is a career path that you wanted to do. And the decision that you made should be based off of the fact that deep down to your core, all you care about is taking care of people and whatever that specialty is. And if you have lost focus on that specialty, you need to be re-centered. And if that means that you have to, to work hard, to work extra shifts, to, to, to do what is required of your profession, you might have made the wrong choice. And if you thought that this path of, of being a physician or a healthcare clinician was easy, you're wrong. And if you don't have what it takes, you need to figure it out and step up because there are people that are counting on you. Whenever they show up to you, they didn't have a choice necessarily on who was going to show up that day at that hospital to take care of them. They are counting on whoever shows up, is passionate about their job, wants to be there, is educated, trained, experienced, and equipped to do whatever it is that they are expected to do, whether that's an anesthesia case, whether that's a neurosurgery case, or whether you're visiting the dermatologist. Is you had taken a, a, an oath to this profession, either formally or informally, and it's up to you to meet the requirements of that profession and uphold the highest standards of medical care that the U.S. has. People might not like the medical and healthcare system in the U.S., but I guarantee you that there's not another country that does it better. Whenever somebody from the U.S. gets sick, we don't send people to France or Italy for surgery, but we get people from all over the world to come to our hospitals to, 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 to visit those doctors who are passionate and who have put in the time to be the best physicians in the world. Luke, you've just summarized the whole theme of our podcast for the last several years. Thank you for Amen. that. Amen. Listen, I, I want to respect your time, and I want to thank you for coming on and sharing such uh, inspirational photos, because when people see you now, I'm sure they look at some of those photos and go, wow, this is a young man uh, who has come through a great deal and sacrificed a great deal. Um, please um, feel free to come back on in the future. We'd love to hear more about your consulting company. Uh, and thank you for coming on for this episode of the Nursery Podcast. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I definitely look forward to coming back. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.